Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. This week on Miranda Warnings, we're very pleased to have Cass Sunstein. Welcome, Cass. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Cass is the founder and director of the Program on Behavioral Economics and Public Policy at Harvard Law School. Also from 2009 to 2012, he was administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs under President Obama. And he served on the President's Review Board on Intelligence and Communications Technologies and on the Pentagon's Defense Innovation Board. Most recently, he was tapped as chair of the World Health Organization's Technical Advisory Group on Behavioral Insights and Sciences for Health. Is it true that you refuse to serve in any capacity unless it comes with a long and complicated title? That is not true. <laughs> if, the, if the idea was to appoint me teacher, I would accept that with uh, great pleasure. Well, it's very impressive. And um, we have a lot to talk about and we're very grateful to have you uh, with us here on Miranda Warnings. You recently wrote an article that appeared in the New York Times uh, that claims that the structure of our modern government is under legal assault. Tell us your thoughts on that. There's a movement that's traceable to the 1930s, actually, uh, that got a lot of energy in the early 80s and is now more vivid in public uh, domains and is more powerful than it's been, actually, ever, I think, which is to deem the Environmental Protection Agency, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Communications Commission, kind of constitutional barnacle, which might be because these agencies exercise broad discretion. That's one view. It might be because at least some of them operate independently of the policy making control of the president. Uh, that's another objection. Or it might be because under some pretty technical but really important principles, they get to interpret their regulations and they get to interpret statutes so long as both of these are ambiguous. If you put it all together, modern government is under a lot of constitutional pressure. So, you know, our government has really two kinds of agencies. Those that come specifically under the executive branch and then the other agencies that you've just mentioned that are created by uh, Congress and, and have some independence. And uh, your assessment is that uh, there's a movement that would essentially forbid Congress from granting uh, excessively broad or uh, discretion to administrative agencies such as the one that you just mentioned, those that actually do some tremendous things, the EPA, the Department of Labor, Department of Transportation. Um, so why is it that those would be attacked? There are two different ideas and they're longstanding. One is that under Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution, it's not permissible to give discretion to agencies if the discretion is very broad. And on that view, if the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, is given discretion to protect the public interest, 
that's too vague, or if the Occupational Safety and Health Administration is given discretion to issue rules that are reasonably necessary or appropriate, that's too vague. So one view is it's called the non-delegation doctrine, and some people think it violates Article 1, Section 1. It gives legislative power to the administrative state. The second view is that agencies that are independent of the president, like the Federal Reserve Board, meaning the president can't fire members just because he disagrees with them, though he can fire the administrator of the EPA because he disagrees with him or her. The idea is that that violates Article 2, Section 1, which vests executive power in a president of the United States and doesn't vest executive power in, in a commission let's say, that runs the National Labor Relations Board. So those are two very different lines of attack. One is about Article One. one is about Article Two. Well, and, and when you say some uh, believe that uh, Congress shouldn't be granting these powers, amongst those some are some members of the Supreme Court. And uh, one of the issues you raised is um, if this is challenged in the Supreme Court, uh, there's some uncertainty as to whether uh, how the court would would decide. And talk talk to me a little bit. Of, talk to us a little bit about what your thoughts on how the Supreme Court views this. Okay. So from the founding until 1935, the Supreme Court never, never struck down a grant of discretion to an administrative agency under the non-delegation doctrine, as it's called. So it never happened. From 1936 to the present, it never happened. There was one year, 1935, where the Supreme Court struck down some stuff from Roosevelt that was said to give too much authority, discretionary authority, to Roosevelt. Now, since 1936, this has been a dead doctrine, but five justices, mind you, that's a majority, have said that they'd like to revive the non-delegation doctrine, which could mean, on the interpretation that Justice Gorsuch has suggested, probably would mean that the Occupational Safety and Health Act is in deep, I pause and say trouble, so as not to avoid, so as to avoid a four-letter word. The uh, uh, some of the statutes under the authority of the Department of Transportation would be in deep trouble. And there are numerous other laws that would be in constitutional um, uh, jeopardy. And this could mean you know, a radical rethinking of what the US government looks like. And because it's very hard to get a consensus on, from Congress on a specific form of words, it could mean that some of these very important authorities would be gone forever. And as you indicated, these are, in fact, tremendously important authorities to uh, our da daily lives, the ones that we've become uh, used to, and to uh, lose these, there would be, you know, just gaping holes in how uh, we're governed. Absolutely. So there's no question that if the non-delegation doctrine were used, parts of the Clean Air Act would be struck down and we may never get them again, and parts of the Occupational Safety and Health Act and much more. Think of a gun being loaded and aimed at the operations of the modern state. Now, you know, when we talk about the modern state, uh, in, and we're talking about agencies that have some independence, are these the are these the agencies and uh, those that are employed that work there? 
Are they part of the deep state that I hear so much about? Well, the deep state, those words, I'm not even sure how to describe those words. It's a way, it's like name calling. It's like you saying someone you don't like is associated with some bad thing. So the deep state, if we're talking about these agencies, they're populated by human beings who have diverse political views. I worked in the White House with civil servants of multiple kinds. They vary in their amazingness. Many are deeply amazing, some not so much. And the uh, truth of the matter is that they're trying to do their best by and large to implement the policies as established by law and the president. So the independent agencies would pose on the view we're discussing a different problem than the problem of too much discretion. The problem would be that they're not subject to the president's plenary control. Well, that's right. And, and of course, these agencies serve a purpose and uh, the independence that they are provided with serves a purpose because now they're not subject to the political whims and vagaries of uh, changing administrations and that our, our government can have some consist consist consistency as we, uh, as we go along. And you talk in your article uh, about the rule of law um, and talk about it in a way that I think uh, is is worth sharing because we talk we throw around terms like the rule of law um, and a lot of people don't understand exactly what that means uh, but you talk in your article about uh, the conditions that philosopher Lon Fuller uh, required uh, for the very existence of law and why that's important and, and maybe share a little bit of that because I, I thought it was uh, tremendously important Okay, great, thank you for that. So um, the objections to the modern administrative state, which are flowering today and causing the uncertainty and I think dangers that we've discussed, they're not baseless. So if you're um, ever dealing with an administrative agency, there's a chance that you'll encounter something that you won't like. And it could be a threat to your liberty. It could be um, a violation of the Constitution. It could be a threat to self-government. So these are extremely important things to keep in mind. Uh, the idea of the rule of law, which is the basis for a book by Adrian Vermeule and me, is invoked uh, by Lon Fuller, this uh, philosopher from Legault, as a way of saying that for a legal system to be a legal system at all, you need a few things. You have to have rules. If the ruler gets to decide on a case-by-case -case basis whether you committed a crime, that's not a legal system. That's a system of edicts. Or if the rules change so fast that you can't know what they are, it's not a legal system anymore. It's a system that's like a clothes washer and you're spinning inside it. Or if the laws are applied retroactively to you, so on Monday you do something and it's fine, and on Friday the authorities say, oh, I guess we were wrong, it shouldn't have been fine. And then they punish you for what you did, which when done was fine. That's a violation of the very idea of what a legal system is. It's not as if it violates some external value. It's just not a legal system anymore. So what Fuller did under the specter of fascism and communism was to list eight ways the rule of law fails, meaning it's not a legal system anymore. 
And, you know, fascism and communism are really, really bad. But even under systems that aren't at all fascist or communist, you're going to see threats to these values. And the administrative regulatory state sometimes does threaten these values in the sense that uh, people are shocked that the rule means something. They read it, they didn't think it meant that. Or that the government didn't account for their reliance in what they thought reasonably was the law. And what we need with some urgency is a set of constraints on violations of the rule of law understood in this specific way. And the good news is we have a lot of that, not as much as we should, but if you look at the details, the technicalities of what courts have been doing over the past years, a lot of it is rule of law stuff. So you mentioned that there were eight principles that uh, go along with this. And I'm wondering in your view, and I'm reading this and it seems terribly relevant to things that we're facing today. How many of these eight principles has President Trump violated in, in his administration? More than zero. So <laughs> well, I'll, give, uh, I'll give a couple of examples. Uh, one is the repeal of the DACA program, which was a program that gave protection to children of illegal uh, immigrants. Uh, the repeal violated reliance interests without considering them. So it had a abusive retroactivity in it, as the Supreme Court said. Now, to disappoint expectations, sometimes that's life and it's okay. But to do without even considering it, is inconsistent with the rule of law. That's what the Supreme Court said. There are cases in the environmental area where the current administration has not followed the law. It's acted with respect to certain legal requirements um, in ways that make the law on the books not look like the law in the world. And that's another principle that uh, must be respected if we're to have a legal system at all. Uh, the lack of transparency sometimes has infected uh, policies that have come from this administration where it's been extremely hard for people to get clarity about what the Affordable Care Act means even. And that has been maybe an effort to defeat the operation of the Affordable Care Act or undermine it, but it's inconsistent with the requirement of transparency. Notice, if you would, that Fuller's principles aren't at all political. The Clinton administration could and did violate them. I think less than the Trump administration, but that's not relevant. Uh, what's relevant is that the principles are like a knife that don't ap appeal more to Democrats than Republicans. They appeal to everyone that can cut through problems that might otherwise be uh, argued out in purely political terms. Now, uh, you've also written a little bit about your thoughts on the Justice Department, which is uh, a department that uh, uh, comes under the executive branch, uh, historically has had some independence, but we're seeing something of a, a crisis in the Justice Department uh, re recently. Prosecutors are resigning because they feel there's some inordinate political pressure. And you raise the issue of maybe we should think about transforming the Justice Department into a more independent agency. And I, I share your thoughts on that. Uh, this is a proposal I offer with fear and trembling. And I'll explain the proposal and then I'll explain the fear and trembling. Yes. So uh, the basic idea is that 
the Department of Justice, by at least uh, most of modern tradition, is A, an executive agency subject to the president's ultimate control, but B, understood by norms to be not a political body. Not as if it's free from politics, of course, if it's a Republican president, it's gonna have different views than if there's a Democratic president. But it's not thinking about re-election or punishing political enemies or uh, playing a political game at all. The law is a higher idea. And sometimes this has been frustrating to both Democratic and Republican presidents that the Attorney General has thought of herself or himself as having um, uh, a dual hat, the law and the White House. And sometimes the law hat is bigger. Okay. Um, the, Trump administration's use of the Department of Justice has been inconsistent with the tradition of dual-hattedness with fidelity to the law being often the bigger hat. And that's a genuine problem. If our Department of Justice is a tool of a political actor thinking about re-election or enemies lists or something, then we have Houston, we have a problem, uh, as Tom Hanks said in the movie. And the question is, what are we going to do about that problem? And the idea of making the Justice Department independent, as this is the fear and trembling, raises a constitutional question. It's not clear Congress has the authority to do that. And also raises a legitimate political concern, which is, gosh, isn't the Attorney General allowed to shift with uh, on some matters with the spirit of the country as reflected in the election of the president. So if you're right of center president, you get a right of center Department of Justice and so too on the left. Still, I think it's essential at a minimum to restore norms of fidelity to law and not using the awesome power of the criminal law even as a threat to go after people essentially on political grounds. And it's worth considering uh, what would be a very large reform, which is making the Department of Justice more like the Federal Reserve Board. And states typically, not typically, frequently uh, do that. That is, they make the Attorney General uh, independent of the governor, and that's on principle. And it's not a baseless principle, it's a kind of inspiring principle about the uh, mischief is a soft word for this, but and authoritarianism would be a hard word for this, but that can come when the po political machinery and the legal machine machinery are tied up together. Uh, having worked at the White House, I'm very conscious of the possibility that what's reported in the newspaper is not completely consistent with what's actually happening in Washington. But what's reported about the Justice Department now is, let's phrase it gently, is concerning that the Attorney General is turning the Department of Justice into a political weapon. And that's, uh, there aren't a lot of things I think in life that genuinely merit the word scary, or at least the percentage of things that are given the word scary is lower than the percentage of things that merit the word scary. But what we're talking about now is scary. Yes, and coming from you, um, using the word scary, because you speak in a very thoughtful and deliberate way, and I, I um, 
most of what you're saying, even when it is scary, sounds you know quite nice and and <laughs> palatable. And but it is what's going on here is scary because the norms that you talked about that um, Republican and Democratic administrations in the past have followed are now out the window. And if it's not absolutely required, and even then it doesn't even, uh, by law, then it's not being followed. And, you know, we are seeing a Justice Department that has been acting in a way that we have, I don't, as far as in my memory, have never seen anything close to uh, with exactly what you talked about, where political enemies are being attacked, political friends are being granted clemency. Uh, and so the norms are gone. Well, I want to phrase it, you know, uh, a bit more cautiously, but, uh, and say that uh, we would need to go case by case um, and be very concrete. But there are certainly cases in which standard norms of let's say, restraint and uh, independence uh, appear to be under severe pressure. So to talk about prosecuting mayors, as has been reported, for some sort of crime, that's, um, that's not consistent with, with norms. And we do have um, developments which are inconsistent with traditions uh, that we should be proud of. So, you know, you mentioned that there may be a constitutional issue in making the Justice Department uh, more independent. Uh, but let's let's put that aside and let's just talk th theoretically. Why would it be so, why would it, why wouldn't it be better for us to have an attorney general that perhaps is selected the way the attorney general is selected in New York State? So the governor runs, uh, the attorney general runs. Sometimes the uh, you have a representative from this on the same party. Um, they have similar philosophies, maybe, but they also have the indep enough independence to provide a check on one another. Um, why couldn't we have that federally? There's a, let's have three models of separation of the Department of Justice. Maybe let's have four. Sorry to be complicated. Model number one, this is the most cautious, which is basically an entrenched norm by which the Department of Justice and the White House have a certain degree of separation. When I worked in the White House, the idea, I knew the Attorney General, of course, and worked with him, but the idea that someone from the White House would call up uh, Attorney General Holder and say, prosecute these people, don't prosecute those people. That was um, verboten. It was uh, right. would violate a taboo of the most uh, clear kind. So, so let's talk about that as norm restoration as an idea. The second idea would be to say that the Department of Justice should be like the Federal Reserve or like the Federal Communications Commission in the sense that there's an appointment by the president and that would give the president who's elected after all, a certain authority to orient the direction of the institution, but wouldn't have ongoing policy making control. So the, the president doesn't have on make, uh, ongoing policy control over the Federal Reserve or the Federal Communications Commission, uh, but, but there's no election of the chair of the Federal Reserve. So that's a different model. Um, another model would be that while the president gets to appoint 
the Federal Reserve Chair. You could imagine he can get rid of the Federal Reserve Chair with the advice and consent of the Senate. And that's a model which Alexander Hamilton actually in the Federalist Papers was uh, enthusiastic about. Uh, and that gives the agency or the institution a degree of uh, freedom from the president, because if that person's going to lose his or her job, it has to be that both the president and the Senate agree that the person should lose the job. And then the last idea, the fourth idea, would be that the attorney general would be elected or the Federal Reserve chair would be elected. That would require a very fundamental constitutional overhaul. And I'm not sure that that would be a good idea at the national level. In fact, I tend to think it wouldn't, uh, that the election of the attorney general would be, let's say, messy. And what that race would look like is messy. And whether that would be better than having either the norm restoration, the most modest idea, or the idea I floated, which is having the Department of Justice uh, be like the head of the Federal Reserve, I think it's doubtful. You'd make the Attorney General a political actor uh, who would be subject to political process. And while that is often really important to do in some sense for elected officials, for someone who's in charge of the administration of justice at the national level, uh, that would raise some of the dangers that uh, we're, we're seeing uh, these days. Well, um, Biggie's issues obviously are all, are all very important. I, while we have you, I want to talk a little bit about your time with the World Health Organization and the work you're doing there. Tell us a little bit about the group that you're, you're chairing uh, at the World Health Organization. Uh, thank you for that. So the World Health Organization is um, entrusted with helping to make uh, the, the, the world healthier, human beings all over healthier. And many of these problems are strictly medical and scientific issues, but many are behavioral. So if the question is smoking secession, uh, what works to get people to stop smoking? Or if the question is uh, reducing the number of people who start smoking, how, how can you do that? Or if the question is what can be helpful in getting people to take vaccines, you might think about COVID-19, you probably are, but it could be flu or it could be polio, it could be any number of things. Uh, what works? And uh, since almost every health problem and possibly every health problem has a behavioral component, uh, the director general is very focused on how to help people uh, to make healthier choices if that's what they want to do, which is typically what they want to do. COVID-19, my, my dog is enthusiastic about this idea uh, and uh, he is uh, barking with excitement, not with disapproval. Uh, the basic idea is how can we get people to be informed, uh, to be able to overcome certain biases, which may lead us to make unhealthy decisions. And we have uh, 20 odd people from 16 countries with remarkably diverse backgrounds focusing like a laser, I think for the first time in the history of the World Health Organization on the behavioral question itself. Let me ask you, what are your thoughts on the behavioral aspects as it pertains to uh, COVID-19 that we're experiencing right now? 
very large and great question. Um, one thing that's kind of self-evident is whether people will engage in social distancing or wear masks depends on a lot of things. Like, do they think that wearing masks, for example, is going to reduce the risk? Or do they think that wearing masks is kind of silly and stupid and uncomfortable? And social distancing, whether people think that that's a way of protecting uh, themselves and others against sick, getting sick, or do they think that's just some sort of game that foolish outsiders have forced them to play? And since mask wearing and social distancing are two ways really to cabin the, uh, the pandemic and potentially to save large numbers of lives, uh, we really need to focus on um, clarity and on ease for people such that they will do the thing that might protect their best friend's mother from dying within the next six months. Well, Professor Sunstein, uh, I want to thank you for your time with us on Miranda Warnings. I want to thank you for your thoughtful service to our country in uh, a variety of capacities, all of which are extremely important. The issues we're talking about today, I don't think could be any more important. But we do have something of a lighthearted feature on Miranda Warnings called Music Book or Movie. Maybe you could share with us what's helping you get through these times. Well, I'm really enjoying a TV series called Bosch, which has a number of seasons. And while some seasons are great and others are merely good, every night my wife and I watch an episode of Bosch and it distracts the mind and focuses us on something other than the fact that air travel is not really a good idea these days. Okay, so, so the series Bosch, um, it is nice to have something to take you away from uh, our, our daily struggles. Uh, so Professor Sunstein, thank you very much for being with us on Miranda Warnings. Thank you so much, it was a great pleasure. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.